Welcome to another edition of the Long Gospel Devotional. My name is Eric Sorensen, pastor at Hillside Church in Roxbury, New Jersey, as well as a contributor to 1517 in a whole host of ways. Good to be back here with you again this Tuesday to look at God's two words from all of the scriptures. The last few weeks we've been in the Old Testament lectionary text. This week we're going back to the New Testament. Specifically, we're going to be looking at the epistle text for this upcoming Sunday, and I can't wait to dive into it with you because it is a passage that I would imagine for many of you is very familiar and nevertheless has lots of gold nuggets for us, lots of good news for us to sink our teeth into. So without further ado, let's go ahead and do just that. We are looking, if I could sum it up, we are looking at spiritual warfare today. Specifically, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. I'm sure many of you know the passage. It's quite famous, quite well known. It's all about the battle we are in as Christians. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of that phrase, spiritual warfare. What comes to my mind is, well, frankly, a book from my childhood, Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness. I've never read the book, so I can't recommend it, nor can I say that it's bad. I just don't know. Nevertheless, this seemed to be a book that was around all the time, and I know that it was about spiritual uh, battles and spiritual warfare. For some others of you, what might come to your mind is a book I have read, C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, which I think is maybe the most accurate depiction I've been I've come across of actually how I think the devil and his minions work as they come to battle with God's saints and with God's people. But for some of you, maybe you just think of spiritual warfare and think of those who make a show out of it, like Bob Larson, you know, pounding demon-possessed people with the Bible on their forehead or a cross or whatever it is that he has in his hand. And it all can look a little silly. But the fact is, spiritual warfare is a reality. Uh, historically, the church has said that we really have three enemies battling against us. Number one, it's our own selves. It's the flesh. This is what Lutherans mean when we say simultaneously saint and sinner. As Christians, we're still battling the old man. Paul does a wonderful job of describing this in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, where he says, I keep on doing what I don't want to do and that which I don't want to do. I, you know, keep vice versa. You know what I'm saying. Uh, and then you have, of course, the world. And although we're not going to physical battle against the world, nevertheless, the, the idea behind this phrase or the, the, the term world often in Scripture is this, this system that is counter to the kingdom of God, that is counter to Christ. And indeed, we're warned not to be subsumed by the world and to, be, to keep our eye out, to keep on guard. But then, of course, really the animating figure or figures behind all of this mischief, all of this havoc, all of this evil, all of the pain and destruction of the world is, of course, the devil and his minions. And there's no passage that illustrates that more than our passage today out of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. When I think about how the devil operates, I, I can't help but think of a really powerful scene right at the beginning of the Passion of Christ. It's not bombastic, it's not crazy, but instead he's pictured whispering things to cause Christ to doubt as he's sweating drops of blood in the garden, thinking about what will happen to him at the cross, thinking about him being forsaken. He says things like, can you really carry the sins of the whole world? It's, it's far too heavy for you, Jesus. Or he'll cause Jesus to doubt or he wants Jesus to doubt whether his father really is his father saying, who is your dad? Who is your father? Would your father really allow you to go through what you're about to go through? 
That is most often the way that the devil actually works in our lives. What are the characteristics of our enemies? Well, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12 tell us. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. That's where Peretti got his title from. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Indeed, three characteristics stick out to me here. Number one, our enemies are powerful. And to the degree that we don't recognize this, we are sitting ducks. We must recognize that the enemies we face are more powerful than we often give them credit for. Number two, that they're driven by evil and destruction. As Jesus says, the, the devil really exists to destroy, to steal, kill, and destroy. Make no mistake, he does prowl, out, prowl around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And yet the way that he tends to do the devouring, the way that he tends to draw people away from Christ is through scheming. And that is mentioned in this passage as well. It's through deceit. It's through trickery. Indeed, you can go back to the very first pages of the Bible to see exactly how that looks when Satan deceives Adam and Eve into eating the fruit, making them believe that God is holding something good back from them. So our enemies are real and they are constantly coming after us as God's children. And although as Christians, we cannot be possessed by the enemy, nevertheless, we can be harassed by the enemy quite a bit. So what does God provide us in order to, well, fight back? Well, first he provides us with defense. Now it pains me to acknowledge this as I picture Pat Beverly here, but the reality is Pat Beverly is a great defender. I know, I don't like it either. Former University of Arkansas player, I'm doing this as a shout out to my man, Dan Price. Nevertheless, when he is on defense, he's quite effective. And indeed, Christians need to be on defense. We need to be able to stand our ground against the enemies. Paul mentions that four times in verses 11 through 14. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. He continues in verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And then at the beginning of verse 14, stand therefore. It's indeed very important to Paul that we stand our ground, that we stand up. Well, how can we do that? Not in and of our own strength. We need gifts from God. We need equipment from God. And thanks be to him, we have equipment. First, we're told we have the belt of truth. Verse 14, we have fastened on the belt of truth, or we're told to fasten it on. What does the belt do? Well, the belt holds everything up so the soldier is not snagged down by his clothing. Remember, the soldier back then didn't have fatigues. They had long sort of flowing clothing that was that would easily snag them down. Well, well, what does a belt of truth do? Well, the truth sets us free, Jesus says. And the idea I think being presented is if you are living in the truth, in the light, well, then there's nothing that the devil can use to hold over you or to blackmail you or to snag you down with. He can't take you over. Indeed, living in Jesus holds everything up, as it were. That's the idea. Continuing on with our equipment, Paul says we need to have the breastplate of righteousness. Verse 14, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, what does the breastplate protect? It protects the heart. What does righteousness protect? Our hearts against the accuser. 
not because of our own righteousness. If we were to appeal to our own righteousness, we'd be sitting ducks. We'd be dead. The enemy can easily defeat our own righteousness. No, we appeal to the righteousness that has been credited to us, imputed to us on account of Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul triumphantly says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because we have been imparted his perfection. If you want to hear what it looks like to wield or to use the breastplate of righteousness, consider this from Luther. When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and, death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Boom. Continuing on, we have the equipment, well, known as gospel shoes or shoes of the gospel of peace. What do the shoes do? Well, they protect the feet so you can run with confidence into battle. The Christian life is oftentimes in the scriptures compared to a race. We are running this race, whether it be Hebrews chapter 12 that tells us that or, or Paul's various admonitions to make sure that we continue running the race of the faith. Well, what does the gospel of peace do for that run? It causes us to run with full assurance and confidence that God will give us the energy to persevere, to completely continue. It gives us strength to, to go on. Now, as I think about shoes that strengthen us for the battle, I can't help but think about a pair of shoes I was issued when I briefly worked for the beautiful city of Rancho Cucamonga, California, my hometown. And the shoes they gave me were a pair of Red Wing shoes. Now, Red Wing shoes are the most uncomfortable shoes I've ever put on my feet. That is a fact. Nevertheless, there was a great confidence when I wore them that even if I was to do great damage with, say, a sledgehammer or whatever else that I was not good at using, and believe me, I was not good at using a lot of the tools that I was given. I'm not a handy person. Thus, I'm a pastor. Nevertheless, the Red Wings protected me against all manner of potential bodily harm, most of the time inflected by my own clumsiness. Continuing on with gospel shoes, you want to hear a passage that talks all about it? Well, look at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 to 31. Isaiah says, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, true, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Yes, we can run this race because the gospel declares to us we are forgiven on account of Jesus Christ alone forever. Continuing on with our equipment, we have the shield of faith. What does the shield do? Verse 16, all circumstances, take up that shield, Paul says. Well, it extinguishes the flaming darts of the evil one. The shield protects you from the arrows of the enemy. What kinds of arrows is he firing at you at all times? Well, he's firing the arrows of temptation. He's firing the arrows of despair. He's firing the arrows of accusation, reminding you of all the ways that you fall short of the holiness of God. And what the shield of faith does is it causes us to remember the one that we believe in is sufficient enough to save us anyway. Let's go back to Luther talking about this mighty faith. Quote, faith is a living, 
bold, trusting God's grace, so certain of God's favor that, if, that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Such confidence and knowledge of God's grace makes you happy, joyful, and bold in your relationship to God, indeed, and all creatures. The Holy Spirit makes this happen through faith, through that shield of faith. Because of it, you freely, willfully, and joyfully do good to everyone, serve everyone, suffer all kinds of things, love and praise the God who has shown you such grace. Once again, boom! Continuing on, we are not just given a shield, we are also given the helmet of salvation. That's what verse 17 says. The helmet, what does it do? Well, it protects your noggin. It protects your brain. It protects your mind. What does the assurance of salvation do? Same thing. Protects your mind from deception and accusation from the evil one. Charles Hodge, a Reformed scholar, said once that which adorns and protects the Christian, which enables him to hold up his head with confidence and joy, is the fact that he is saved. And we might add that he knows his salvation will be perfected in the end. That is good news. So that's our defense against the weapons, against the arrows that are fired at us all the time by the devil and his minions. But we don't merely have defense. We also have offense. In other words, we don't, we're not just called to stand there, but we're called to do something back, to fight back. We can, we can do something. We can go on offense. I prefer this picture of offense much more to the picture I use to illustrate defense because, of course, now Russell Westbrook, that great fire starter of offense, is a Los Angeles Laker. And those of you who know me know that I'm a huge Laker fan and I've got high, high hopes for this year. All right, moving on. I digress. What are, what are offensive weapons? Well, we're told that we have the sword of the spirit as the old character Bible man at least tried to illustrate in a very corny, corny way. Nevertheless, that yellow sword was supposed to remind us that we have the sword of the spirit. What is the sword of the spirit, oh, Paul? Well, Paul tells us it's the word of God. To the degree that we know the word of God, we can fight back against the enemy as Jesus did in the wilderness. If we don't know the word of God, well, then it's not too long before we become sitting ducks because we're great, great at rationalizing away our sin, great at telling ourselves lies and making ourselves believe that the word of God is what counters all of that. You want to hear an example of wielding the sword of the spirit? Well, listen to Luther again. Quote, experience is required, gathered in many kinds of bouts and temptations to be able to meet the devil when he comes and enters into judgment with us, wants us pious, and on the basis of the law argues with us about what it means to have done right or not. Before an untried and inexperienced Christian has learned his lesson, the devil has so disturbed him that he must fear and tremble and does not know which way to turn. Therefore, we must learn to cling to Christ's word and comfort alone and to permit the devil no argument about our own works or piety. Don't let him do it. The word is your strength against it. Luther continues, one does not gain much ground against the devil with a lengthy disputation, but with brief words and reply, such as, I am a Christian of the same flesh and blood as he is my Lord Christ, the Son of God. Settle your account with him. Then the devil does not stay long. I can't help it. Boom. Perfect. But we're not done. We also are told that we have another weapon, which is the weapon of prayer. 
Paul says this, pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Yes, friends, we are not merely given the weapon of the word, but we are given the weapon of prayer that is and should be rooted in the word, based on the word. But nevertheless, it is our ability to cry out when it feels like we can't do anything. And there's many times in which that will be the case. We always have the weapon of prayer. Paul says to use it at all times. And so the idea is as we steep ourselves in the word, then our prayers are guided by the word and therefore aligned with the will of God for our lives. Paul calls us to make supplication for all the saints, to make supplication for the gospel spread and to make supplication for those who teach the word. Why? So that the enemy would be tied up and ineffective to the degree that the word goes out the enemy gets weaker. So where are law and gospel in our passage today? Well, clearly the law is used by Satan masterfully to accuse you and harass you. The devil loves using the law in order to cause you to despair in the power of the gospel and its sufficiency. The law, of course, is shown in this text through the simple recognition that in it of ourselves, we cannot stand. But of course, the gospel is shown all throughout as we are reminded again and again that we do not stand in our own strength, but with the gospel weapons our Lord provides. So with that as reality, let's hear one more time from dear Dr. Luther. Since you are so equipped, why should you fear? Why should you be afraid? Do you not know that the prince of this world has been judged? He is no Lord, no Prince anymore. You have a different, a stronger Lord, Christ, who has overcome and bound him. Therefore, let the Prince and God of this world look sour, bare his teeth, make a great noise, threaten, and act in an unmannerly way. He can do no more than a bad dog on a chain, which may bark, run here and there, and tear at the chain. But because it is tied and you avoid it, it cannot bite you. Indeed, it's just only appropriate with such a quote of victory in the gospel of Christ that we end with yet one more boom. Indeed, that nails it when it comes to spiritual warfare. You do not have to be afraid of such things, dear Christian. In fact, you can be bold in your battle against the principalities and powers that go at you because you are a Christian. God's richest blessings to you. Have a wonderful rest of the week. Look forward to seeing you again next Tuesday. God bless.